Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Teaching Literacy Podcast. I'm your host, Jake Downs. I'm an elementary literacy coordinator, a PhD graduate from Utah State University, and someone who wants to know just a little bit more about reading. Before we get to today's show, just a few items of business. You might have heard just barely that my uh, position title has changed. I've uh, spent the past year working as an instructional coach for the school district that I work for, and um, I'm very fortunate and very excited to be now working as uh, the literacy coordinator for all of our grades K-6. So it's, it's an exciting opportunity for me to work and try to support teachers and support bridging literacy research into practice, which is something I'm a, I'm a big believer in and very passionate about. Uh, welcome to summer. I hope your summer is going well, and I salute you for getting some professional learning in during your summer break. Um, otherwise, if you're listening to this at some other point that's not summer, I hope things are going well for you in your classroom. I'm very excited about today's episode. Today I interviewed somebody who has been on my radar for several years and someone I've been wanting to get on the podcast. And when I heard that this book was being released, I I got the book ordered as quick as I could and I've spent time reading it. And I'm very glad to have this interview ready for you today. The guest I'm bringing onto the show is Dr. Seth Parsons. Dr. Seth Parsons is a professor of literacy at George Mason University, uh, and he recently edited a book with Dr. Margaret Vaughn, who's been on the show before, and the book's titled Principles of Effective Literacy Instruction, Grades K-5. One of the reasons I was really excited about this book is typically when I'm interviewing um, researchers on the show, we're typically talking about peer review articles, and those are generally behind a paywall or they're, you know, written in academic speak, and so they're a little less accessible to, um, you know, practicing teachers. This book, however, is written by researchers specifically for practitioners, and so there's 22 chapters, and each chapter is written by an expert in that particular area. And if you've listened to the podcast for a while, you'll see many names on the table of contents that we've had here on the show. Uh, Dr. Chase Young, for example, uh, Ray Reitzel, Sarah Clark, uh, Margaret Vaughn, she has a chapter and she also helped edit the book. Uh, So that was exciting to see a lot of familiar faces. So we talked today specifically about this book. I highly encourage you to go out and buy it. It's it's relatively cheap. I bought it on Amazon. You can get it wherever, you know, wherever you buy education books, I'm sure. So sit back and enjoy the show and stick around after the interview for my two cents on the topic. Dr. Seth Parsons, welcome to the Teaching Literacy Podcast. Thanks for inviting me. This is, uh, I'm excited. So we're talking about a book that you and and Dr. Margaret Vaughn edited, and it's titled Principles of Effective Literacy Instruction, Grades K through 5. Before we get into the book, can you give us some background for how the book was conceived and, and developed and sort of the process with getting this book even published? Sure. So Margaret and I are both committed, passionate teacher educators who in our work, try to prepare elementary teachers to be highly effective when they enter the field and be prepared to enter this lifelong learning, you know, a profession that is always learning and growing. So we try to give them the skills to do that. And uh, we've been friends a long time. So we often uh, compare notes with what we're doing in our pre-service classes and uh, texts we're using and that sort of thing. And one thing we noticed is that existing texts for, um, 
pre-service and in-service teacher education and literacy tend to focus on teaching methods, like instructional methods, how to teach phonics, for example. You know, you have a chapter of what phonics is and how to do it. Uh, and it sort of, it seems really, uh, th those are excellent texts to have. But we were thinking about the complexity of what classrooms uh, entail and the idea that teachers have to be responsive and uh, flexible in the classroom and really be able to think on your feet with the, uh, the students that you're serving and uh, the diverse needs they bring to you. And, and we've often spoken about the idea of principles. Like, so if, if teachers can understand principles of how kids learn to read and what type of instruction helps to fulfill those skills that students need, uh, then they can apply them flexibly to that uh, complex and ever-changing environment of classroom reading and writing instruction. And that sort of led to the idea of this book, that we need the methods types of books uh, that are often used in pre-service classes, but we thought that this would be a complementary text where well, we can sort of take a step back and say, what are these principles that teachers need to have uh, in their minds when they're trying to apply instruction that is constantly changing and evolving? One, one of the things that attracted me to this book was the, the handbook style of it. And that's, that's an approach you see uh, that's more common in academia where there's one topic and then different chapters are, are written by, by different researchers that have expertise in that field. Uh, but that's less common in publications that are meant more for, for teacher consumption. Um, so I assume that that was a, a deliberate structure, a, a deliberate um, aspect that you wanted to, to bring on the, uh, into this book. Can you elaborate a little bit on that? Sure. So we had all these different components that we wanted to speak to, and we wanted to bring uh, various experts in to bring in a diverse perspectives and points of view and really dive into the topics in depth. And we really challenged the each chapter author because we wanted it to be relatively succinct. We presented this text, as I just described to you, as sort of a complementary text, uh, not one that would be a standalone text necessarily. Uh, in retrospect, we think it could, but the way that we sort of conceptualize it was, you know, they'll have the methods textbook. So we want it to be complimentary. So therefore, we really want to get to the point and keep each chapter really short. So we challenge the authors to do that. So succinct but comprehensive chapters on each of the designated topics. Um, and while Margaret and I, um, you know, we have vast knowledge of literacy, we wanted to make sure that we had multiple voices and different perspectives at the table. So uh, we invited chapter authors who demonstrated clear expertise in that topic to really dive deep and present what they felt would be, you know, captured that principle of effective literacy instruction. And I appreciate that the chapters are pretty succinct. I could read a chapter in, in about 20 minutes, and it was a really good way to, for me to get some breadth. And I I appreciate the focus of principles that uh, that you and Dr. Vaughn focused on. The, on the on the Brack, there's a quote by Gerald Duffy, who I'm I'm just a huge Duffy fan here, but but he says on the back of the book, I've learned from my from both my research and more my more than 50 years of working with K-5 classroom teachers that teaching reading is a complex creative process based in principles, not rules. And and that's something that you and Dr. Vaughn have both written about uh, extensively is instructional adaptations according to the the complex 
dynamic environment of, of teachers. And uh, it sounds like that focus on principles was a was a response to that of, of giving teachers sort of a framework that they can then implement and use to, um, you know, leverage instruction and, and, and make literacy happen within their classroom. Yes, absolutely. And in the name of full transparency, uh, Jerry Duffy is my mentor and also Margaret. So that's how Margaret and I uh, came to be friends and colleagues and uh, once we met in our PhD program where we both studied under the mentorship of uh, Jerry Duffy. And that's certainly something, that sort of philosophy that effective instruction, especially effective literacy instruction, can't be scripted. It can't be uh, captured in any sort of program because uh, kids, the reading process and classrooms are far too complex to have some sort of mechanical or uh, rote instruction to uh, elevate students literacy skills. So that that philosophy that you sort of outlined there is something that I know that Margaret, Jerry, and I all subscribe to uh, after spending so much time in classrooms with teachers and with kids. The book is divided into three major parts. There's the first part that talks about the reading environment. Um, the second part talks about reading instruction. And there's a short conclusion part that talks about teachers as uh, being reflective and, and with, as lifelong learners. Um, so as we go throughout the interview, we'll kind of just highlight chunks from, from each of those different um, um, sections. So perhaps we'll start with, with environment. So there's three or four chapters in that section. Based on what those authors wrote, what role does the environment play in supporting literacy instruction? And, and what might a teacher consider when they're trying to design a classroom environment that can facilitate literacy achievement for their students? Yeah, so the classroom environment in which uh, literacy instruction takes place um, is an important consideration because it can really facilitate literacy learning. And if we think about the primary grades, just having a very print-rich environment with labels and lots of texts and uh, student-created and classroom-created uh, sort of anchor charts and things like that that students can attend to, word walls, that sort of environment that really just floods text into the kindergarten, first-grade classroom is supportive for students learning uh, you know, the basic building blocks of words and how words work. So having that environment um, doesn't replace instruction clearly, uh, but it certainly complements it. And in addition, across all grade levels <clears throat> in elementary schools, uh, we know that time is the most precious commodity in schools and there's never enough. So running an efficient, well-organized classroom uh, is absolutely critical to uh, highly effective literacy instruction. And if we think through how elementary classrooms work, um, they're often in the literacy block, you'll have centers or stations because the teacher is often pooling small groups for small group differentiated instruction or meeting individually with kids just due to the uh, vast diversity of student needs. Uh, that's a, an effective way of differentiating. But that leaves the rest of the class. You have 20 plus kids uh, who are working on independent work. And I know for, for myself, far too often I've seen that work uh, to be mindless, rote, busy work, just to keep them busy so the teacher can work with those five kids sitting in front of her, how many. Um, and uh, we've also seen where it can be highly effective and students are engaged in meaningful, independent work um, that is pushing their literacy learning. And to do that, you need to have knowledge of how to set routines, procedures, and activities 
um, that facilitates such an organization. So we can either maximize that use of time uh, to facilitate differentiated instruction or lose it. And that, that's why that uh, environment chapter is, is just so critical. I was struck by that one too. I it stuck out to me because uh, Ray Reitzel and, and and Sarah Clark, who've both been on the podcast before, you know, wrote that chapter. So that was one of the first ones I read. And and I, um, you know, if you if you only have 90, 120 minutes in a reading block, a teacher really needs to make full use and maximal use of that time. And and certainly a large component that's going to be with their, uh, you know, pedagogical understanding of of literacy instruction, progression, development, and that. But but just the management aspect of if I've got 28 kids, 30 kids, um, how do I balance that? The needs of, of different groups of kids and, and expert teachers can do that. It's, it's challenging. <laughs> it's really complex and hard, but, um, but that is certainly an aspect to it is how do we make the best use of, of time that, that we have given to us to make sure that instruction and, and literacy support for our kids can happen. Moving on to the second part, the part two with instruction, is the majority of the book. There's 16 chapters on, on instruction. And while there's certainly chapters that we would expect to see like phonemic awareness and phonics, fluency, comprehension, vocabulary, um, there, there really is, I mean, there's 16 chapters. There's, there's a real breadth of chapters on literacy instruction and on topics that um, might not uh, you know, typically appear in a, a teacher level, a practitioner oriented text. Um, can you speak to the the curation of the of the wide selection of chapters of instruction and and why you feel that 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 was a necessary component to this book? Sure, and uh, that's a product of um, several Skype meetings like this or Zoom meetings uh, between Margaret and I. Margaret's on the West Coast; I'm on the East Coast, so um, we have to use electronic. Uh, conversation, but in planning this book and the structure, uh, we had lots of conversations about, again, focusing on our pre-service teachers and the teachers we work with in the classrooms that we, um, local schools that we work with. We were thinking what's absolutely critical and what's most um, timely, uh, what the teachers entering the workforce today uh, need to know. Um, and these are the chapters we came up with. And I think that the, the breadth of chapters speaks to the complexity of the work. And uh, we have the, uh, you know, the traditional five pillars, uh, which are absolutely uh, necessary to teach and uh, have unequivocal uh, research background to demonstrate uh, that they are necessary for uh, teaching and learning how to read. Uh, so we made sure that those were included and that we uh, gave appropriate attention to those uh, essential aspects of literacy learning. But we also have other chapters on, um, you know, student engagement in reading, um, what types of activities are being assigned during literacy blocks, uh, autonomy supportive classrooms, and those three chapters really focus on motivation and engagement. So really getting kids to learn to love to read and write, which we see as um, an important aspect of literacy learning. Uh, we would hate to uh, develop a generation of kids who could read but don't read uh, because that's, that's um, not productive, uh, not doing our jobs well as teachers. Uh, and then we have uh, the stuff, uh, the components of 
literacy instruction like intervention and explicit teaching and differentiation to make sure that we're reaching all learners, uh, not just uh, middle of the road and also not just the struggling readers, but that we are meeting kids where they are and helping all of them move forward in our classroom. And that's, you know, as you mentioned, we have 25, 30 kids uh, in our classroom, and that's a, that's a big uh, task before teachers. Um, so we wanted to cover that breadth uh, to help teachers reach all students. And, you know, in that regard, we have chapters on culturally responsive literacy instruction and approaches to critical literacy, because we feel that those are uh, vital components of a literacy uh, instructional approach as well uh, if we are going to accomplish that goal of optimizing the instruction for all kids that we serve in uh, schools today. The, the breadth there is, is impressive. And there were several, I mean, I've got stars next to chapters. I was like, yeah, I want to look at this, go back and look at this one again. And, and I, I almost have more stars than not stars. So I, I was really impressed by the breadth there. Um, one, one chapter I wanted to highlight specifically was the chapter on explicit instruction by Dr. Dana A. Robertson. And explicit instruction is a, it's a term that um, at times can mean different things to different people, and, and sometimes it, it evokes some emotion one way or another. Um, but I, I, I really appreciated the clarity with which Dr. Robertson explained explicit instruction. And, and so on, on, on page 137, Dr. Robertson says, explicit instruction is intentional teaching. Um, what does he mean by that? And what, what misconceptions did you feel that this chapter cleared up around um, explicit instruction? Sure. Um, I absolutely love that chapter. Dana is an excellent scholar who has done great work on uh, struggling readers and intervening with kids. Uh, he's got a background as a uh, instructional coach, a reading coach. Uh, so he had responsibility for helping teachers grow, but also helping uh, students become effective. And uh, the chapter that he created uh, was it was really noteworthy. Uh, I love it. But um, he does a great job of explaining what uh, explicit teaching is and what is not in the sense that explicit teaching is very direct and it's where the teacher is in control and giving kids the skills and strategies um, that they need to do. And um, it's really, he, he hones on in on uh, something that uh, Jerry Duffy um, really focused on in his book, Explaining Reading, where uh, a lot of kids, when they're struggling to learn to read, it's sort of like this secret that they don't understand. You know, you have the struggling reader in the classroom who's sitting around and watching their classmates get it. They read books, they understand what they're doing. And meanwhile, the, the child looks at the page, maybe sounding out the words and nothing's making sense. And there's something, there's some secret that uh, this student's missing out on. And that's where Jerry really focused on his book and Dana sort of built upon that saying that in those cases, we need to show kids the secret. And there's no better way than saying, hey, this is how you do X, this skill. So if you're going to teach main idea here, I'm going to pull back the curtain on main idea and show you how to do it. To do the main idea, you have to do one, two, and three. Here, watch me as I find the main idea of this paragraph 
and then modeling the process for them. You know, we have the old tried and true, nothing beats a good model. And I think that that's absolutely true. And that's what Margaret and I sort of had in mind when we were thinking of this chapter is again, pulling back that curtain and showing kids who, who don't get it, show them how to do it. Um, we can't expect kids to discover how to learn. So it's uh, incumbent on the teacher to show them. And yes, we can support literacy development through uh, uh, text-rich environment and lots of stories and read-alouds and lots of choices for kids to read. And we promote that 100%. But that needs to be complemented with uh, teaching kids exactly what the steps are to complete a skill or strategy. And um, a, a masterful thing that I think Dana points out in that chapter is that um, explicit teaching sort of had this reputation of being uh, rote skills disconnected from uh, actual texts, you know, connected texts. And he makes the point uh, repeatedly throughout the chapter that this sort of explicit teaching where the teacher is in charge and the teacher is modeling and showing students how to complete a skill or strategy that needs to take place in connected text so that that connection is made made otherwise uh, students may you know if they spend all their time at the letter level or the word level or the sentence level, uh, they're not gonna understand what, what it means to actually read. What is this act of reading? So I love that he contextualizes it within authentic text that's relevant to kids. That's where explicit teaching should take place, not on a worksheet or skiller drill, which is sort of the primary misconception that I think uh, exists in that area. Yeah, in the end, we're always trying to scaffold towards connected text because that is <laughs> that is literacy. And I I so appreciated the that word intentional just struck me so clearly as it's we're just being very clear. We're being very we know what the students need and we're going to provide the support, the scaffold, the instruction, the instruction for that. And um, I thought, that, yeah, I thought that was an excellent, excellent chapter. Um, something else that caught my eye, and this probably will end up meandering back to that, that connected text component, but I was, um, I wish I would have counted, but I was, um, I was interested in how often read-alouds were mentioned across chapters and even very diverse chapters across the, uh, the instruction block within, within this. Um, so why do you think so many different researchers in different areas invoked read-alouds as a way to provide um, support for students? And um, what, what considerations do you think a teacher might have when crafting a read aloud uh, that would be productive for students? Sure. Um, well, read alouds are so effective because they're so diverse in what they can accomplish. Uh, so if you think about doing a read aloud with your elementary class, uh, it can be done simply to build community or enjoy a good story together as a class. Something as simple as that, uh, but also a way to like set the day. Like this is the tone for the day. We're, we're a group. We're in this together. We're going to enjoy this good story. Uh, but it can also be used to uh, teach comprehension strategies in a contextualized fashion. Or it could be used to... Uh, show different perspectives on uh, individuals or show um, differences in uh, what kids and cultures and languages and 
backgrounds that kids have. Books are can serve as a window into others' uh, worlds to try to promote a more, you know, just uh, classroom and society with kids. Um, a read loud can be used to teach, um, you know, like intentional word choice for writing. So it can be like an author's craft as like a model mentor text for kids. So there's so much the text can be used for. And there's so much great uh, children's literature out there. Um, the, the books that are being produced uh, currently are just, just tremendous for um, telling stories, exposing kids to uh, diverse backgrounds and different uh, places in the world and then uh, society. Uh, so it really helps to build background knowledge and models fluent language and it, it's just an opportunity to um, hit the variety of different components of what it means to be literate. And it does so, like we were talking about uh, previously, in an authentic, um, connected text, not totally detached from um, what real reading and writing actually is. I think what caught my eye about it... Uh, um a read aloud for oral language support has been a little bit of a hobby horse of mine lately. And I think that's why I kept sort of seeing it in all these different chapters. But what really clicked with me was um, the, the stacked nature of a read aloud, how it can absolutely provide just engagement with a good book, but we can also stack in, um, okay, now we're building background knowledge. Okay. And we're also modeling fluency. Oh, and we can provide oral language and comprehension support. And so it doesn't have to just you know, be the, the reading for engagement, but it's very easy to stack all of those in there. And, and because the teacher's doing the reading, it's, um, it's a really great scaffold. It, it's everyone in that classroom can access that text. And, and with, with really, uh, it, it, with, with teacher facilitated instruction can really provide some rich, rich support in reading without having to decode every single, every single thing. And I, I, that, that's something that, that really that really clicked with me that oh, okay yeah read louds can they can have they can really be very multifaceted to meet lots of different instructional instructional goals yeah and you you just made a good point that I didn't even uh, articulate but yes another one is the you know freeing kids of that cognitive load of decoding in the in the primary grade so they can attend to more of the higher level uh, thinking associated with comprehension and uh, fluency and vocabulary development so Another term, so similar to explicit instruction, there's another term that I think carries a, you know, can mean different things to different people. And that's the, that's the term student autonomy. And I, and this is a chapter that you actually helped co-author. And I, I love this chapter um, too. And, and uh, you and your co-authors write on page 227 that autonomy is not synonymous with independence. That is autonomy, autonomy support does not mean students are given free reign. So autonomy isn't complete independence or isn't free reign for the students just to go in and discover everything. Can you help clarify what autonomy is and, and provide a few principles that teachers can use to support student autonomy within their classroom? Sure, and just a, a little background on how that topic came to be. And um, as we were formulating topics for you know coming up with the table of contents, we even shared the table of contents with uh, several colleagues who are literacy uh, scholars and teacher educators. And, 
you know, we said, is there anything missing here? Like, did, did Marner not miss something? And one thing that uh, multiple people pointed out was like, you don't have a chapter on motivation. And uh, that was intentional because we sort of saw motivation as, as being so important that it, to put in a chapter sort of makes it feel separate. And it, it uh, we see it infused throughout. So we ended up doing uh, three sort of chapters that really get at the affective side of reading uh, in addition to the cognitive side that comes with uh, uh, the skills and strategies associated with reading. And uh, so we have a chapter on um, engaging students with texts. Gay Ivy and uh, Erica Gray wrote that wonderful chapter. Then we also have a chapter on academic tasks uh, and uh, Mar Arroya Scales and I have um, uh, talked a lot about tasks over the years and she she's a an excellent teacher educator scholar who uh, has knowledge about what are we asking kids to do in classrooms and what messages are we sending about reading and writing based upon those activities and that relates to how kids come to see texts and also relates to their motivation and then our chapter on autonomy support uh, it comes from, you know, the field of uh, educational psychology and motivation, really getting at the sense of the classroom environment and, um, you know, how kids operate within a, an environment. And uh, the self-determination theory uh, lens of motivation that uh, really speaks to me, I think it's a, it's a, it's a comprehension, comprehension, comprehensive theory of motivation that really um, looks holistically at what it means to be motivated. And uh, within that theory, um, they talk about autonomous learning situations and controlled learning situations. And uh, when individuals, uh, including students, are in controlled learning situations, it really undermines motivation because you are doing someone else's bidding, whereas autonomy, um, sort of the individual feels like they're in control of their own destiny, in which case motivation is heightened. So uh, to be frank, we've never seen a chapter on autonomy support uh, related to literacy, teaching, and learning, but it's absolutely vital if we think about uh, engaging kids in the act of reading and writing. And you can speak with any elementary school teacher. You, you know, you know, you're a you're a teacher. Motivation is a central concern. It's not always the most, but it's up there. If you were going to say what are your top five um, issues that you have in your classroom, uh, I would I would venture that most te you know motivation would uh, make that list for most teachers. Um, but autonomy support is uh, the idea that students are behaving in a way that aligns with their goals, values, and interests. So the more that we can arrange our literacy instruction in such a way um, that students come to value uh, literacy and um, see literacy as something that is of interest to them, we can take reading from being a chore, which it is for several kids, many kids, um, to being a highly enjoyable activity, which I personally believe it inherently is. Uh, something that I uh, highlight in all my courses is that reading is inherently enjoyable. You know, there's something about uh, human beings that are really drawn to 
stories and whether it's our, our history of oral storytelling or what, but there's something about uh, being human that is really drawn to stories. So if kids hate to read, it's not that they hate to read, it's that they haven't, they haven't found the right book yet. Uh, and they also haven't had um, experienced school in such a way in which uh, their you know, psychological needs are met. Uh, and that's where autonomy support comes in. Uh, some principles for supporting autonomy in a literacy classroom uh, would include lots of choice where students um, are engaging in uh, texts and writing on topics and uh, where they, they have some decision-making in what's taking place. Uh, also, the idea of relevance is really central to uh, supporting students' autonomy. The, this is nothing new. We've long known as teachers that if we can make content relevant to students' real, real lives, uh, we're far more likely to get their attention. But now we have uh, theoretical and empirical backing demonstrating that when we do that, um, we're enhancing students' learning and their motivation, which is uh, what's the cycle we want. The more motivated kids are, uh, the more likely they're to engage, and the more they engage, uh, the better their success. So motivation and achievement are two sides of the same coin. And attending the students' autonomy needs is uh, one means of uh, approaching both of those, both sides of the coin. I thought one of the strengths of the chapter um, that, that you highlight is, is there is a bit of a balance where there, there, there are certainly times where the, the teacher, you know, where, where there might not be choice allowed in a specific thing, where it's just, this is, this is what we're all doing. And, um, but that trying to find times to incorporate meaningful choice will probably get a lot more bang for your buck than just having sort of ad hoc or, or, or low value choices. So um, being intentional about, you know, maybe the way they, they show their, you know, show learning from a particular, um, you know, book or story, maybe there's different formats they, they can do that in. Um, or perhaps even as some autonomy with, uh, you know, texts that are selected or specific topics that are, are, are read or investigated. Um, but by providing some, I mean, the, the, by integrating that, that balance of providing choice where, um, where, where the teacher can and provide choice that's, that's meaningful um, that, to give students some ownership over, over what they're learning and where they're headed. I, I thought that was a really um, powerful chapter that helped frame it well within the complexity and, and dynamics of, of regular classroom instruction. Thank you. And we tried, I will make a point, we tried to be very clear in the chapter um, that we don't suggest that all of the classroom instruction is going to fit that bill in the sense that there's times when there is going to be a controlled environment in which uh, students don't have any choices. Uh, but the problem is when that's all the time. Um, so if, if kids are always in controlled environments, uh, that's when you see the, the total disconnection from, from school and uh, reading and writing altogether. So um, it is very much a balance. It's not an all or none uh, whenever uh, speaking to autonomy supportive versus controlled environments. Uh, so I do want to uh, highlight that, that we're not in a, a, a fantasy world where everything uh, is highly engaging and motivating, uh, but it's, it, it's the balance. It shouldn't be always the opposite. Uh, 
the the closing of the book, uh, the last section is specifically on teachers, and I I I thought the book just wrapped up really nicely. Um, the the last chapter in the instruction section was um, from Dr. Margaret Vaughn, and we've we've had her on the podcast to talk about adaptive teaching, and then it transitions to part three with teachers, where there's a chapter on reflective practice, and then a final chapter on teachers as lifelong learners. And and I I left reading the book feeling very um, you know, almost empowered with, um, you know, re- le- it's, a, it's a lifelong journey for all of us, right? The kids are on a lifelong journey, but even as teachers, you know, learning to teach reading is a, life, is a lifelong journey and the research is evolving and, and it, it's a lot to, to sort of grapple with, but there's, you know, the, the, there's a process that we can continue to elevate our practice. And, you know, obviously reflective practice has been something that's been recognized you know, for decades. And, and I think they cite John Dewey in there for, you know, a hundred years of, of being an essential component um, of good teaching. But, you know, what does more recent research reveal about um, how teachers can be reflective and the impact that reflective teaching can have on, on student learning outcomes? Yeah. So being a reflective teacher, well, I'll take a step back even further. Margaret and I are huge proponents of teachers. Uh, Both of us have been classroom teachers and we are teacher advocates and we advocate for teacher autonomy. We advocate for uh, teacher knowledge, supporting teachers um, and removing barriers to effective instruction. And we feel that uh, enhanced knowledge and enhanced reflection and more time and more collaboration among teachers is what allows teachers to fulfill this absolutely um, essential role in society. Uh, So we are huge supporters of um, teachers and we feel that uh, reflective practice really puts the onus of teaching and learning where it belongs with the classroom teacher. Uh, it doesn't come from standards. It doesn't come from policymakers. It doesn't come from administrators. It comes from the teachers who work with those 30 kids day in and day out for 180 days a year. Um, so the more that we can support teachers in becoming reflective practitioners um, is what allows them to operate within the highly idiosyncratic context of each individual classroom with the unique 30 kids that they serve each year. And you know, as well as uh, all teachers do, that the next class that you have next year is going to compel you to rethink everything. Uh, Yes, there are principles, principles of effective instruction, but it's going to change based upon the personalities, the strengths, the background knowledge, the language proficiencies, Um, the cultures that students bring, all of that is going to influence what it looks like. And you can't just, you know, press repeat and do last year over again and expect success. So that reflective piece is absolutely um, a vital part of what it means to be a teacher. And uh, as far as current research on uh, reflective practice, I think the field and the profession have come a long way in recognizing that uh, teaching is a collaborative endeavor. And even back when I was in the classroom, there was a lot of just closing your door and, uh, you know, doing your thing. 
And that's just not the way schools operate anymore. And thank goodness, because that wasn't the best approach. So the idea that we're in this together, so whether it's a grade level team or um, even cross grade level, sort of the, the tiered uh, collaborations or whether it's topical collaborations where everyone focuses on comprehension, for, for example. But this is a collaborative endeavor. So now we have structures in schools often uh, where there are collaborative learning teams, you know, heard about CLTs, uh, professional learning communities, PLCs, uh, teacher study groups, whatever the name. The idea is that teachers have time and space to work together in that reflective act. Um, and that can look like a thousand different things, whether it's a book study, an article study, or lesson study, or child study. Uh, but when you bring professionals together uh, to reflect on their own practice and solve problems of practice, everybody learns and grows, which is what the profession um, requires. And uh, that's how we do it right. Um, I fear far many, far too many initiatives and policies try to um, like force feed content or force feed instructional approaches. Um, and that's just not going to work because of the complexity and the diversity of classrooms and kids that we talked about since the outset. Uh, so if we can move away from that and move towards giving teachers more time, giving teachers more resources, giving teachers um, the ability to work together um, to engage in reflective practice collaboratively, I think we'll be far better off in enhancing all students reading and writing. Yeah, in, in Dr. Vaughn's chapter, uh, where she wrote about adaptive teaching, um, she, she provided a model that I, I haven't seen, and so I'm not sure if it's new specifically in this text or just newer from, from her work, but where she talks about that there's, there's sort of a, there's, there's a process that, or, or there's, in order to support effective teacher adaptations for instruction, which I think goes hand in hand with that reflective component that there's parts that teachers that teachers need to have, um, you know, things like content knowledge or procedural knowledge or, or pedagogical knowledge that those will obviously enhance, enhance the instruction. And I, I um, that's something I've been thinking a lot about, about lately is um, teachers are decision makers. There's, there's no, there's no way around it. They are making dozens and dozens of decisions during during a reading block and so what what pool of knowledge are they making those decisions from and uh, and I think that's what a, a book like this can really help support is is those principles so they're making better instructional decisions and I I think if we if we elevate teacher knowledge and help teachers understand um, what what current research or what you know where the field is at then we can support them in implementing whatever curriculum, whatever policy, you know, whatever the powers that be are, are sort of directing them to do. We, it's a way we can, I guess, have our cake and eat it too, that we can take the materials given to us and, and still make it work because of that, that professional knowledge that, that teachers have and are hopefully continually uh, developing. I will point out that um, that aligns with the autonomy that we were talking about earlier and that when teachers operate in controlled environments uh, that's where you get burnout and um, 
early retirement and career switchers uh, because they feel like their hands tied and no matter which way they turn, they can't do what's best for their kids. And there's nothing more uh, deflating than that. So uh, while we try to be autonomy supportive for students, we also promote autonomy support for uh, teachers. That's not to say that we take a hands-off approach uh, in schools, but wet rather elevate the profession of teaching to the status that it deserves and giving them the resources to engage in the important work uh, that they're doing. So, sorry, I just wanted to make that connection uh, as it emerged. Now that's the, that is, that's a perfect connection to make there. It's, it's still going to be, it's, it's not going to be completely free reign or independence. You know, that's, that's not necessarily ideal or um, realistic either, but, but there does have to be, teachers do have to have latitude to make instructional decisions. And I, and I think, um, you know, supporting, you know, the, the, the organizations, district, state level, you know, whichever that support teachers um, should be interested in supporting their professional knowledge and not just, um, you know, uh, implementation aspects of it, but helping their ongoing development. Um, in fact, um, doctors Amy Morwood and, and, and Julie Ankrum, they quote Linda Darling Hammond at the opening of their chapter. And this is the last chapter in the book. I, I loved the, the quote from, from Dr. Darling Hammond. There was then and still is now a too common belief that if you had a good undergraduate education, you could go and teach. But there's so much more to learn. And it seems to me the way that's framed is, is really the, the undergraduates almost, it's almost like the triage kit of like, you know, you're, you're good enough to, to, to go into a classroom and, and, and start to make literacy happen. But it's, um, you know, there is so much more to learn from that. So, you know, I'm curious as, I mean, this book's, you know, a month, six weeks old. How do you foresee this book being uh, used by schools or districts or in individual teachers? How, how would you say this is this would be a great way to use this book to support professional learning? Yeah, thank you for that question. Um, you know, we feel like the variety of topics and the expertise that the chapter authors bring uh, has a lot to offer both pre-service and in-service teachers. Um, I think it's a great compliment um, for practicing teachers uh, who uh, are wanting to uh, engage in that lifelong learning. Um, we have very current, uh, up-to-date research uh, that we, uh, you know, we asked chapter authors uh, to, to give the, the snapshot of their principle based upon uh, research right now. So the most up-to-date research for practicing teachers who, who ha have a lot of the knowledge but uh, can enhance uh, their understanding of what it means to teach in these different areas. And we see it as a great resource for pre-service teachers too. Um, I'd like to think that it's a really approachable text. Uh, as we've noted earlier in this podcast, the, uh, the, the chapters are intentionally relatively short. We try to be succinct uh, so it doesn't become overwhelming, uh, but it also really gets to the point. Another challenge we gave to chapter authors was to make it highly pragmatic. The idea that this is... Um, we don't want uh, theoretical type stuff. We, of course, value theory and we can use theory, but we need to make that leap into practice. What, is the, what are the applications to uh, the classroom 
um, that teachers are going to face uh, in practicing teachers case tomorrow or pre-service teachers case, you know, in the next year or so. Uh, so we want it to be relevant, timely, um, fully up to date, um, and also able to help all teachers enhance their craft. And uh, we're so thankful to the chapter authors because we're, um, the work and the knowledge they uh, put into this book have exceeded our own expectations and vision that we started out with when we just, um, you know, had a nugget of an idea and a, a draft table of contents. And um, I think they, they really knocked it out of the park. So I think that this text has something to offer teachers at all stages um, and can help reach all kids. That is a, a central theme of the book is all students um, deserve the right to high quality literacy instruction. And this book has lots of information on how to do that. And we're forever indebted to the, the chapter authors for helping our vision um, come to life in that way. And I might add that um, all teachers are entitled to, you know, deep theoretical, pedagogical, instructional content area knowledge to make that that happen. I, I, those two absolutely are going to go hand in hand. And I think this, this book will, 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 will do wonders with, with um, making that happen. So um, again, the, the book is titled Principles of Effective Literacy Instruction Grades K-5. And it, I, I picked mine up on Amazon, but I'm, I'm sure it's available through lots of different um, retailers or, or outlets. Um, so Dr. Parsons, we, we appreciate you joining us on the Teaching Literacy Podcast. Uh, final question for you is, what do you think makes a great teacher? And what a great question. But um, I feel like we've, we've sort of uh, talked around that for the last uh, half hour or so. Uh, but I think the, an effective teacher is uh, highly knowledgeable, highly motivated. Uh, and when I say knowledgeable, they're knowledgeable about content and pedagogy and uh, Equally as importantly, their students. Um, teachers know their kids better than uh, anyone other than their families, um, just due to the amount of time they spend with them and also how they get to know them through the work they create, the conversations they have, uh, the instructional activities they complete, um, the side conversations during, you know, transitions as they're walking to lunch or recess. Teachers really get to know kids and it's that deep knowledge of kids as well as uh, instruction and content um, that is absolutely uh, essential for an effective teacher. And I think uh, effective teachers are flexible and adaptive and that they are able to operate in the, the highly complex and unpredictable um, nature of classrooms. And that's no easy task. And it's not a straightforward profession or a straightforward act to trying to teach uh, students uh, all these different subjects in uh, six short hours each day. Um, and yet I'm consistently awed at the teachers who are able to do it. Um, but that's what I think uh, a, a teacher is, is knowledgeable, committed, uh, committed to growth. Uh, you never figure it out. You know, you never perfect it. So uh, being open-minded, uh, being honest with oneself, being willing to learn, even if you're, you know, 
been doing this for approaching two decades like I am, uh, understanding that you haven't figured it out um, and that you're always getting smarter. And, uh, you know, it's hard work, but uh, ultimately the kids are worth it. And uh, again, I'm just so thankful that we have so many professionals across the nation who engage in this work exceptionally and too often thanklessly uh, across the United States. Dr. Seth Parsons, thank you for joining us on the Teaching Literacy Podcast. Thank you for having me. Wow, what a great conversation with Dr. Parsons. Very grateful that he would join us on the show. And also uh, a shout out to all those chapter authors too that were able to collaborate and work together to develop such a, a fantastic final product. Again, I highly encourage you to go out and pick up this book. It's very accessible to to practitioners and, and it's meant to really support um, teaching and learning within the classroom. So my two cents before uh, the end of the show is the, the first one I want to talk about that word principles. We talked about it at the outset of the episode. It's something that has really stuck and hung with me. And this idea of um, of being able to give teachers a framework to work within, right? Where And I've used this talk with some other teachers before, where perhaps sometimes we try to give teachers a blueprint of exactly what needs to happen in a classroom or what needs to happen with students, but perhaps we need to be giving teachers more of a compass where we're giving them sets of principles that they can use as a, as a guide to support uh, literacy learning within their individual situation. And so the, that idea of principles has really stuck with me. I think it's, that can be an effective vehicle for supporting professional learning. Which brings me to my second point, and my second point is this idea of professional learning. Uh, If you are listening to this podcast and you've listened to previous episodes of this podcast, then I can can full-heartedly say that you are a believer in in ongoing professional learning, um, as am I, as very clearly Dr. Parsons is. And so thinking about how could a book like this be used for ongoing professional learning? Um, Professional learning, it it can be self-driven by an individual teacher, but I think there's a lot of power in when a when a faculty or when um, co-teachers or a grade level or or even at a district level when there is a a system for professional learning, um, and that's what Dr. Parsons talked about is giving teachers some some agency to sort of um, be able to self-select and and determine what they need to learn. But um, sometimes it's not. I think it's because teachers don't want to know more, I think sometimes it's just so hard to, cu- to curate really quality materials um, that, that are sort of hard-hitting and can support language and literacy development within a classroom. Um, that's something I'm thinking about with this book, is how perhaps could this book be used for my ongoing per- professional learning or for some of my colleagues' professional learning. And I would encourage you to do the same, is um, how could a book like this that's a collection of short chapters that focuses on specific topics, everything from reading fluency to organizing a classroom to providing student autonomy, wide range of topics, how could that be used for ongoing professional learning in your professional situation. I think there's a lot of power in that, of being able to systematize our our professional learning so that we can do the best job we can to support those young readers in our classroom. 
that's all I have for the show today. Thank you very much for listening and for your ongoing support. Uh, as always, if you want to read a, leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get podcasts, that'd be great. I'd probably appreciate it even more if you just share it with a colleague, especially an episode like this where there's a, a physical product that can go and refer to uh, to read more about. So if you found this episode valuable, reach out to a colleague and say, hey, this you might want to check this out. Um, and there's a book that's associated with it that uh, you might consider picking up as well. Thank you very much. Till next time, let's go and teach reading just a little bit better.